From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. This is the Freeman Report with your host, James Freeman, on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hello and welcome to the Freeman Report, which puts the world's leading scientists, doctors, politicians and expert commentators right at the heart of today's news talk and our fight for freedom, liberty and justice. It is Wednesday the 28th of February 2024. Um, I'm your host James Freeman and on today's show I'll be speaking with Professor David Payton um, on topics as varied as Covid, assisted dying laws and um, Brexit, that one again. Um, We'll be talking a little bit about farming obviously with the protests happening in Cardiff today. Um, David is Professor of Industrial Economics at Nottingham University Business school. He's outspoken on many things on social media, which is very refreshing um, for a senior academic. And I'm delighted that he'll be joining us in just a moment. Now, this show was recorded earlier in the week because if everything has gone to plan, and I love a crafty plan, um, I'll currently be standing outside the Welsh Parliament waiting for today's farmers' protest to begin. And If the technology works okay, I'll be joining you from there live in a moment to speak with Gemma Cooper about what to expect from today's demonstration. So, the farmers are angry and according to the organisers, we should see more than 10,000 of them descend on the Welsh Parliament in Cardiff, the capital of Wales today. I've been told that it is a demonstration, not a protest, with the aim of sending a clear message to the politicians that they need to start listening to the rural community. As things stand, the Welsh Government's proposed changes to farming subsidies will see 5,500 jobs lost from rural communities and huge financial losses to the sector. Although farmers are saying that the true number of lost jobs will likely be much larger than the Welsh Government's estimate of 5,500. Welsh Labour, um, which is in charge in Wales, is calling the legislation um, the Sustainable Farming Scheme, which begs the question, who is it sustainable for? It's certainly not sustainable for rural communities that are already struggling to put food on the table. And it certainly isn't sustainable for UK food supplies. Um, The sustainable farming scheme, as it stands, will force farmers to turn over 20% of their agricultural land to planting trees and supporting wildlife, which will mean 20% less land for growing food and rearing livestock which is exactly why the campaign group set up to support farmers is called No Farmers, No Food, because that will be the result of all of these so-called sustainable schemes being proposed around the world. Now, as I've spoken on this show before about um, the First Minister of Wales, uh, Mark Drakeford, stood up in the Welsh Parliament just over a week ago and blamed farmers for their predicament by saying, well, you voted for Brexit, so this is all your fault. Now, if Drakeford wanted to rile the farmers, he's done a brilliant job, um, because more than, as I said, more than 10,000 will be outside the parliament today. And 
we could see some very angry scenes if events um, we've gone, we've seen over the past week are anything to go by. Drakeford has been hounded by farmers across Wales since making those comments in the Parliament. Farmers have turned up at public events, forcing Drakeford to flee the scene in his ministerial car. So, I'm in Cardiff today with TNT to capture the whole event, which will then be used to produce a number of special reports. Gareth Wynne-Jones, who's been on the Freeman Report before, will be speaking on the steps of Parliament, as will opposition politicians. But will we see Mark Drakeford? Well, I very much doubt it, and I very much doubt we'll see any Welsh Labour politicians on those steps. What a shambles. I mean... The big question for me is how did we get to this position after the Welsh Labour government claims to have completed a public consultation? Beggars belief how they've ended up in this position. I mean, who did they consult? Because it wasn't the farmers or the rural communities that this will affect. So I'm absolutely delighted that TNT is once again at the heart of the story after all of its coverage from London and the Assange hearings last week, showing once again that we, TNT, are today's news talk. I'll also be posting on social media this afternoon, so please support TNT and me on X and other social media platforms um, in getting the word out and do your bit to raise awareness of the farmers' concerns here in Wales and across the world. If you want to get in touch about anything on the show, then email me at jamesfreeman at tntradio.live. And if you want to join in the conversation, you know what to do by now. Get over to tntradio.live and click on the chat icon. My name is James Freeman, and this is the Freeman Report for today's news talk, TNT. Be a part of the conversation. I want representation I can trust. Have your say. Biden isn't doing enough. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And yes, you join me now. It's Gemma Cooper on The James Freeman Show. And I'm delighted to say things have gone to plan. And James is standing outside the Senate in Cardiff now waiting for the farmers' protest to get underway in just a, uh, under an, a couple of hours' time. James, it's looking a bit of a wet and miserable day there in the capital of Wales. Uh, can you describe the scene? We can see the staging there behind you and a few people milling around. What's the atmosphere like down there? Yeah, it's early days yet. We've got a, another hour and a half until things kick off. Um, as you can see, we've got the Welsh Senate, the, the Welsh Parliament in the background there. There's quite a large police presence um, today, actually, and they are being a bit arsy, uh, if I'm honest. Um, the Senate officials as well have told all of the press they're not allowed in behind the barriers. So at the moment, we're in with the crowd, which is not great. Um, but we've already been speaking to some of the farmers. I've already caught up with Gareth Wynne-Jones, Steve Evans and others. We're going to be interviewing the Shadow Finance Minister for the Conservatives this morning and hopefully Andrew R.T. Davies as well, the leader of the Conservatives. I've already caught up with him this morning. But yeah, it is a bit of a rainy day, so we've got our brollies ready. 
I mean, talking to the farmers, you said that you talked to the farmers and farming representatives. Obviously, this is a, a latest in a series of global protests, you know, farmers right around the world kicking off against policies. I mean, even today, farmers in Catalan now in northern Spain and Girona, they're out in the streets of Barcelona. They're, they're protesting against water shortages and they, they are going to blockade until tomorrow. Do you get the sense with farmers in France, uh, Wales that, you know, they understand this is a global thing? Do they understand that there could be, you know, an agenda behind this? or do they see it very much more of a grassroots level of just you know protecting their livelihood yeah they do get the the global significance of this um i've had a lot of people asking me over the last few days why they're not blockading cardiff um i've spoken to the leaders um of the the protests and what they want to do is they want to try and engage with the politicians first um so you know they're still having meetings with the welsh labor government here um and what they I think the most important thing is they want to keep the public on side. Um, obviously, you know, the French public are used to seeing scenes of farmers burning stuff, um, you know, um, spraying manure everywhere and blocking roads. Um, but that's not kind of typical of what we see in Wales. So today um, is going to be a message that's going to be sent to the politicians that, look, there are lots of us. We're angry. Um, and if this carries on, I think we will see an escalation of things. But yeah. The farmers very, very much get the global significance of this. They understand that this is more a bigger issue than just here in Wales. And what have the Welsh government said? Because I, as I understand it, the farming minister has said that she understands that changes need to be made and changes yeah. will be made. But I understand they want to wait until the end of this uh, consultation. I understand that's March the 7th. I think the farming unions though, have said they don't trust a word that the Welsh government says and it doesn't give them any reassurance. I mean, the government do seem to be understanding that there should be negotiation at least. Are you getting that feeling? Well, the thing is, I get the feeling that actually the Welsh Labour, led by Mark Drakeford, are trying to just basically kick things into the long grass until all this farming kind of, you know, hype, as, as they think it is, blows over. Um, one of the things Steve Evans said, he was on my show earlier this week, I caught up with him this morning. He has said that they keep on moving the goalposts. So they've had meetings with the Welsh Government this week. Originally, they were supposed to have 12 farmers as part of that meeting. Um, but right at the last minute, the Welsh government said, no, only five people can meet us. So there is a feeling that they're not really playing ball. They're trying to push things through and hoping, I guess, that it goes away. Do you think the farmers can win in Wales any more than they can win around the world? We are seeing such extensive pushback now. It's like if all the farmers of the world unite, do you think they can win? I think they can, actually, because... Welsh Labour at the moment is in a very, very um, vulnerable situation. Their, their leader, Mark Drakeford, who's very, very unpopular at the moment after introducing the 20 mile an hour blanket speed limits across Wales. Um, it looks like Vaughan Gething is the front runner. Um, so this transition is a really important period for them. The farmers, I think the politicians are starting to realise actually that the public support the farmers. Um, although we have seen some some quite derogatory terms coming out. Obviously, Mark Drakeford blamed their predicament, the farmers' predicament, on them voting for Brexit, which is just absolutely balmy. And yesterday we had Alan Davies, who's also a member of the um, Senate for the Welsh Labour Party. He called the farmers and anybody who sought, supports them uh, a bunch of cranks. So well, they're not know, doing themselves mm -hmm. any favours at the moment, but I think, you know, 
I think the show of force today, we're expecting 15,000. That's the latest numbers we're expecting today. So hopefully they'll get the message today. Well, we'll certainly look forward to your extensive report with comments and analysis and interviews with all the key players on the Freeman Report tomorrow. But for day today, James, we'll, we'll leave you there in a wet and drizzly Cardiff and we'll speak to you tomorrow. Thank you very, very much. Okay. Bye -bye. Right then, to the, to the rest of you, stay tuned for James's pre-recorded interview today with David Patton, Professor of Industrial Economics at Nottingham University here in the UK. They'll be talking about farming and a host of other issues here on TNT. Don't go anywhere. Stay here. Stay tuned. TNT's TNT. Mark Morano. Breaking news. Climate punks trash the U.S. Constitution at the National Archive Rotunda in Washington, D.C. We are determined to foment a rebellion. We will not be held to laws in which we have no voice or representation. The entire U.S. archive was evacuated because of this stunt. And did you notice our men in blue and women in blue stood around and enabled these protesters to not only deface the case of the of the where the US Constitution was held, but also to quiet the crowd, it seemed like, and just allow them to speak. It's almost as if, hey, they have the floor, everyone, let's be quiet. We have some uh, we have some uh, vandals here that want to speak. Let's give them our due respect that they've deserved, that they've earned. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. Right, welcome back. Um, I'm absolutely delighted that David Payton um, will be joining me today. Well, he is joining me today. Um, we're going to be covering quite a bit on today's shows, actually. We're going to be talking, first of all, about Brexit, especially given the farmers' protest today in Cardiff and Mark Drayford actually blaming them, um, their predicament on Brexit and, and, and also accusing them of voting for Brexit. We're also going to be talking about COVID, um, censorship around covid assisted dying although i know david would refer to that as assisted suicide and also sex education in schools so loads to cover um welcome to the freeman report david it's great to be with you james thank you for having me right david i wonder if you wouldn't mind start by just um giving us a little bit about your background obviously you're a professor of industrial economics at nottingham university business school um but tell us a little bit more about um yourself um what you've done in the past and um what you do now yes yeah, so, so i'm a professor of economics at nottingham university business school I've, uh, my, my sort of research background covers a lot of issues i suppose more generally in the applied policy analysis so i've done lots of data crunching, looking at the impact of government policies, for example, on, you mentioned sex education, that's one of them. Uh, it was a great surprise to me as I was training as an economist to find that actually we, we, we don't just talk about money, we talk about anything and everything and our sort of tentacles get everywhere. Not so much on the sort of what's right or wrong, but hopefully we can contribute in saying, well, th this is what the data says about the impact of this policies. If you do this, these are the, the benefits and the costs. And that's a lesson that comes up time and time again in Brexit and COVID, that it's so important to look at you know, both sides of the equation to take account of benefits, unexpected consequences. What happens when you intervene with a policy and you know something you hadn't expected comes up? That's the sort of thing that economists really like to look at. 
Yeah, and quite often, um, you know, with with decisions, especially government decisions, there are always unintended consequences. I'm sure we'll be talking about some of those today. Um, To start off with, David, what do you make of Mark Drakeford's um, comments in the Welsh Senate? Um, I know you're not a politician, but obviously you you do cover Brexit. Um, Obviously stood up in the Parliament and he blamed farmers for their predicament at the moment, which actually what they're angry about is policies the Welsh government are putting forward forward. But he also blamed um, them all for voting for Brexit in the first place. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite breathtaking, really. But I think it's not atypical of lots of politicians in the UK, actually from all parties, who have never got over the fact that the people voted for Brexit. And I was on the Brexit side, but I could see good arguments both for and against, good economic arguments for and against. Um, But what I couldn't understand is after the vote happened, why people were so adamant not to, to say, well, the vote has happened, so let's make the best of it, even if we didn't agree with it in the first place. So Mark Drake for today, I mean, it was a little bit sad, really. It was interesting, the same day as the Welsh protests, there were protests from European farmers in Brussels, uh, and they were, they were having using water cannon to, uh, you know, to, to clear those protests. He didn't seem to be blaming Brexit on the European farmers for protesting. But one of, one of the things about Brexit, I think you can overstate pros and cons, but at heart with the farmers, what Brexit did was it allowed us to decide how we should subsidise or help the farming sector. And Mark Drakeford has decided to go down a particular route where he wants to pay for, where he wants to say subsidise farmers as long as they plant trees or take land out of farming production. Well, that's his choice. We don't have to take that approach. We could, for example, pay farmers to produce food, which might seem a slightly uh, strange um, approach to take, but it might, it might be a logical one. And we might say, well, you know, farmers with particular issues like hill farmers, where costs are a little bit higher, we'll recognise the, the environmental importance of that sort of approach, and we'll give a bit more help to that sector. He's not taking that approach, he's taking a different one. And I think the consequences of the unhappiness of the farms in Wales is really lies at his door rather than rather than Brexit itself. Yeah, it is an odd one, isn't it? Because he's essentially saying to the farmers, well, it's your fault I've got the power to do this to you now because you voted for Brexit, even though actually there are no polls or evidence that farmers farmers voted for Brexit. Obviously, the unions in Wales actually voted um, for Remain um, and they, they supported Remain. So it is a bit of an odd one. Um, now, David, you talked about there about the fact that lots of people still haven't got um, they have still haven't accepted the fact that the UK voted to leave the European Union. Of course, we see lots of newspaper articles um, regularly in, in the mainstream press and lots of politicians um, basically saying Brexit's been a disaster. What's your assessment of, number one, first of all, what, what was actually being delivered and, um, of I guess, of Brexit now that we, what, we're four years on from leaving the European Union? Yeah, so uh, th- th- there's lots you can you can say, and I think the first thing is, on, from the eco- economic point of view, there's no real strong evidence of a significant um, hit to the UK economy from from Brexit. So, you know, certain people and certain media types like to leap on any sort of figure that comes out, but only on one side of the debate. So you've got this sort of right from the date of the referendum, you have this sort of Brexit derangement syndrome where it's almost like a sort of article of faith and it's it's almost like certain people were offended that people voted in a, in a particular way. When we look at what's happened since uh, 2016, because the, the, the initial predictions were that immediately there'd be a huge hit to the economy, 
but then also since formally we left the European Union in 2020. Actually, we've seen, for example, um, exports holding up quite well overall since 2015, just before the referendum, uh, exports in real terms, so allowing for inflation from the UK have increased quite a bit. Last year, last year they were pretty much stable, um, you know, but of course that's partly due to recession in countries where you know your exports will tend to go, to go down. Look at growth, the, the UK economy is not performing very well. It's performing at very, very low growth and has done for a while, but so, is most, so are most other economies in the European Union and the roots of that are more due to the energy crisis and the COVID lockdowns mm. we'll probably come on to later on, certainly not Brexit. You look at the sort of independent ev evidence for, for Brexit, um, you sometimes get these reports saying, well, the UK is performing less well than other economies. That's really only true when you compare it to the US. Of course, the US, I don't think, has ever been part of the European Union. That has outperformed most of the EU. You compare to our EU friends and colleagues, we're performing as well, if not a little bit better than, for example, Germany. So the big, big picture is there's been no big hit, as was predicted. And I think we need to go back to the referendum. You know, the big case against Brexit was this fact it's going to be an utter disaster for the economy mm. and you know, things are going to really go pear-shaped. That certainly hasn't happened as a result of Brexit. Most people in my experience, you know, I'm an economist, so I was interested in the economic arguments, but my main argument for Brexit was really on the de democratic side, that we wanted to see, you know, our lawmakers be the ones to decide what our laws would be rather than um, an undemocratic EU. And of course, that is something that has happened. We can argue whether we've taken appropriate advantage and whether our politicians have done the right way. But in a sense, that's now up to us, whether we vote our politicians out, whether we don't like what they, they do. And if all the parties are the same, as lots of people say, whether we want to, you know, look at new parties or independence. But that's, in a sense, part of the you know, exciting long term future for Brexit, the potential that it gives. Yeah, and I'm very much um, siding with you, David, on that. I mean, the reason I voted for Brexit, I wasn't bothered, although I am bothered about immigration now, but I certainly wasn't bothered about immigration at the time. For me, it was always about, I want the people who make the laws that I have to follow accountable to me. I want to be able to hold them to account and vote them out of office um, if they you know, change laws in ways that I don't like. So I'm very much with you on that. Now, the other thing um, I think which you were just talking about there is the long term versus the short term. You know, um, what do you say to those people who are jumping up and down and saying, well, you were promising that Brexit was going to be great and that, you know, it was going to, Britain was going to flourish. Um, to me, it's only four years out. And of course, you know, we were in the European Union for 40 years. So to me, it makes absolutely no sense to make some big sort of final judgment on Brexit at this early stage. What are your thoughts on that, David? Yeah, in the, in the big economic scheme of things, it is early days. And it's very hard to evaluate Brexit, partly because of the huge hit from COVID that was sort of around about the same time. So, you know, it may be quite difficult to really look at whether there was a small marginal benefit or cost in the short term. Uh, maybe hard to know. The longer term prospect, I think, is is indeed exciting. And th there are some, you know, I, I think we probably haven't taken advantage as we might have done in terms of the independence we've got. And I think it's a big shame what's happened in terms of trade to, in Northern Ireland, and that was un unnecessary, unnecessary. But, you know, there are green shoots. So, for example, the, you know, relative new economic relationships we've been developing across the world with faster growing parts of the economy. So, the you know, the Pacific Trading Agreement, Australia, New Zealand, um, and it doesn't mean that we lose our trading with it with the European Union. So, you know, we, we have a quite a unique deal with the European Union. We have quota free, tariff free trade. 
there's some discussion about well you know there's there's some you know slight extra administrative burden at the border which um that's partly you know our, our decision whether that will be implemented but even if that's the case the, the point is we weren't trading freely before when we were in the eu we traded freely with the eu as long as we paid many billions of pounds per year for the privilege now actually we've got a free trade deal quota free drill uh, quota free deal but without having to pay all our custom or most of our customs tariffs to the european union exchequer so some of these longer term relationships i think really are quite exciting just very quickly you know we had this agreement with australia implemented in in may just in the in the first part of 2023 we've seen exports to australia increase by you know a, a really significant well over uh, 10 I think it's about 12 or 13% just in that part of the year and, and car import car exports going up from around about half a billion to over a billion pounds so you know that's a sort of area where there's great potential and and you know we hope we'll see more of that in the future and of course, that was the argument that myself and, and many others made is that, you know, our economy is very, very different to a lot of the other European economies. And actually also, you know, we want to tie our economy to those fast growing, um, you know, economies in the East, um, which we're expecting all of the global growth to come from over the next few decades. Right, David, we're going to take a quick um, a break for the news headlines now, but don't go anywhere. Stay right there because I've got loads more questions for you um, after this short break. So stay with us on TV. We're ready. We're ready. We're ready. News. The news is our business, and we never close. Never close. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with your TNT headlines. NATO countries have rejected comments made by French President Emmanuel Macron suggesting Western troops could be deployed to Ukraine. President Biden has made clear that uh, he will not send U.S. soldiers to fight in Ukraine. Tucker Carlson's accused the U.S. government of spying on him during his high-profile trip to Russia. And Japan's facing an existential crisis with alarming new data showing the country has just six years left to reverse its declining population. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. Right, David, um, I've been looking through your um, X account, um, just getting a feel for the kind of posts that you're, you're putting out. Um, it's quite refreshing, actually, to see a very senior academic. Um, obviously, you're a professor talking so freely on so many issues after all the censorship we've seen um, over the past few years. Um, on COVID, David, what what was your journey? Um, lots of us had a sort of an awakening across that period. I certainly did, where... I realised quite early on, being a former statistician, that things weren't right, you know, especially with uh, when we were seeing the average age um, from uh, death from COVID being higher than the overall death um, age of for all mortality. And when I saw the government sort of shutting down the economy and shutting down the whole country, in fact, it just didn't add up. And I think from that point, um, I knew something was not quite right. Tell, tell me about your experience of the COVID period. Quite, quite similar. So I, I was watching events unfold in uh, January, February and, and March. And I remember, you know, like you feeling, I think the word would be uneasy about what was happening is seeing the direction we were going in and this pressure to shut everything down where the case didn't seem to be made. And, and certainly it was very clear 
that, that those sort of measures would have huge costs, both economic, social, psychological, and they weren't didn't seem to be uh, taken account of. And I remember sort of hearing when the, the formal lockdown happened and, oh, this is going to be for three weeks. And my feeling straight was, it's not going to be three weeks. We can see the direction this is going in. I, I started posting regular data updates from a very early stage, right from the, the end of March. And actually, one of the things I was posting was the daily deaths figures. And it was interesting seeing what the government publishing it was quite clear and the, the Oxford uh, Carl Hennigan's outlet in Oxford found the same thing as I did right from the middle of April so I think the first time I posted was around about the um, 11th or 12th of April it seemed clear that deaths were already decreasing and in fact it, the, 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 I call that the peak of, the, of, of deaths in hospitals in, in England on as being the 8th of April just a few days later that was fairly clear from the from the data the government pr were providing what that implied was that actually infections were going down before the lockdown started. But what was interesting, for several weeks after that, the government was still publishing data and you had the chief medical officer saying deaths are still increasing. This was a couple of weeks after we knew for sure that deaths were decreasing. And that was when the penny really dropped for me that, OK, it's not that the government don't know what's going on. They've decided for whatever reason to go down this you know, shutting everything down is the only solution. And then they have to bend the data or their presentation of the data to fit that narrative. And so, you know, from that point, you know, I was really sort of worried of what was going on. I mean, that is extraordinary what you've just described there. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of what you've described, but it is just extraordinary hearing somebody say it again. Um, because, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's clear that, um, and I wasn't sure whether you would go that far to actually say that the government was fitting essentially the data to their narrative, which I think is what happened. If accepting the fact that that's true, what do you think is behind the whole thing then? That, that is probably, you know, we, we can only speculate, but for whatever reason, uh, you know, I think early on the government didn't seem to be wanting to go down that route. We you know we had a long established pa pandemic plan and indeed we had long established ethical principles. So I just published a paper with uh, uh, an ethicist, uh, John Keown from uh, the United States, who's a um, professor of, of ethics from Georgetown, actually looking at the ethics of lockdown because although I'm an economist and I work with data, and I think it's really important to pick on the data and get accurate representations at heart with lots of these decisions. We've got to remember right and wrong is just as important. Um, and, you know, what, what happened? Why did the government not take this sort of ethical approach? Because the standard ethical principles were established for public health, for when you should have, um, you know, a, 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 an imposition that forces people to do things. And, and the child dress principles, which seem to be very well established, mm. fairly non-controversial. Non and they say, well, you know, we can't say you can never have governments telling you, you know, putting restrictions, but you need a really high bar. You need to show that they're going to be really effective. You need to show that they're, they're going to be, the benefits are going to be much higher than the costs. You've also got to show that there's no alternative that these things you know, couldn't happen with voluntary restrictions rather than um, compulsory. All those ethical principles weren't applied when the government was taking its decisions. Why not? I don't know. They got into this sort of herd mentality. Um, you know, you can go down a conspiracy route or a sort of cock-up type route. I, I genuinely don't know what the, what the issue was, but whatever it was, they decided 
that, well, we have to go th down this route and we won't allow any other agenda to go along. We, but some, I think the most disappointing thing was the way the media fell in behind it and the opposition. We didn't have that level of critical analysis. So, you know, I, I've spoken quite freely and I've been quite fortunate at Nottingham University that I've been able to do that. I know other places it's not been that easy and people have, have literally been censored or they've had um, social media pylons for speaking and it's really destructive to debate. The biggest disappointment for me has been journalists. So we had BBC and other journalists at the press conferences always asking things like, why didn't you lock down sooner? Why haven't you locked down harder? Why are you reducing the lockdown so much at this point? Why aren't you going further? And they're not necessarily the wrong questions to ask, as long as you ask the other questions as well. Why did you lock down? What, what, what is the cost of locking down? Where are the benefits? Where's your evaluation of the benefits? Where is your study now you have locked down the first time of that it was actually effective? So to, to justify you locking down a second time, we never saw the journalists ask those questions. And I think if we had, and if we had the opposition asking those sort of questions, we'd have been in a much better state. But for me as an economist watching that evidence, it quickly became clear it wasn't just wrong ethically, it was not following the evidence and the, the science in terms of the effectiveness of lockdowns and other restrictions. Yeah, and of course, the economists like yourself were screaming out, where's the cost-benefit analysis? And it just never came, did it? We thought at some point it's bound to come because we've had one, now we've had two, now we've had three lockdowns and they're talking about more. Surely we've got enough data now to actually look at the damage that's been done and weigh it up. But it never came, did it? There have been lots of cost-benefit analysis by economists. In fact, the earliest ones around about May or June. They've almost all found that there was no possible way that any the benefits could have exceeded the the, the cost right from from early on but it wasn't just that the government didn't do it um we we hear heard from rishi sunak in one of his interviews before he became prime minister he was actually not allowed to present estimates of the of the costs of these lockdowns that's one of the really shocking things one of the things that comes out in john keown's my um ethics paper you know they they didn't just not do cost benefit analysis they were excluded from considering the costs. It's really, really un unforgivable. Yeah, now there's a couple of, there's a few things that worry me about the, the impacts from doing that. One of them is on public trust um, because now we're in a position, there's lots of people like me. I mean, I've, I've always, you know, trusted medics and, and trusted what the med medical establishment say more or less i mean I'm a, I'm a fairly questioning type of person but i was i was fairly trustful whereas actually now i'm actually worried about any kind of thought about going into hospital particularly when we hear about the midazolam instances i've interviewed many many people on my show do you think now that you know it's not just people like us um critical thinkers but lots of the general public now are waking up to the absolute disaster uh, of public policy that happened across lockdowns do you worry about now um, public health because we're already seeing for example um, the government is talking about measles um, vaccine vaccinations and MMR vaccinations in kids and, and you know the number of kids getting those vaccinations going down um, I'm sure there's lots of examples of medical um, care that people are very very wary enough uh, wary about now do you, do you worry about that going forward yeah, absolutely. I think the, the COVID experience was a disaster for public health, but also revealed, I think, a very worrying attitude amongst lots, not all of public health, where they, they really are dominated by this um, idea that they can tell people what to do, that they work with restrictions, with regulations, as opposed to 
providing good information to people and you know nowhere do we see that more than the, the vaccination program where you know it really was problematic whatever your view about the you know the vaccination in itself the policy I think has been absolutely disastrous for the for public health and for the government so this idea that um, you you know for a relatively new vaccine you couldn't discuss side effects you couldn't discuss costs and benefits that it might be beneficial for some people not for others because for some people perhaps you know the risks and uncertainties are less important maybe if you're elderly or, or, or vulnerable you may be more willing to take them whereas if you're a 16 or 17 year old young man or woman with very low risk from COVID itself, you know, the, the uncertainties over the vaccine may be much more important. And of course, what's happened is that by the government not allowing that debate, essentially saying, yep, it's for everybody, and we're going to shame you and embarrass you, embarrass you to have the vaccine, even if it's really clear that it's absolutely not in your best interests, uh, I think is a, is a shame because people react badly to that. Some people go along with it, and then some people look back and say, ah, oh, why, why did I go along with that? I, I won't listen to that next time. But also you, you, you can get two things. You know, with a vaccination, you may get some people who are perhaps, you know, not trusting public health before. And they see this heavy handed approach and think, oh, yeah, I was right not to trust public health. I'm definitely not, not going to get this intervention or get vaccinated or have this screening, even though it might benefit them. Mm. Whereas other people who, when it really wouldn't benefit them, felt pressurized pressurised into having the vaccination and many and many people as we know suffered as a result so particularly younger people young women young men who got vaccinated to go on holiday or to keep their jobs so one of the research papers I published last year with um, Professor Surafel Germa who's also at Nottingham University was looking at the impact of the vaccine mandate in care homes now you know you can take the view was that ethical I think you know, the idea that you force somebody to take a vaccine on pain of losing their job when it's not in their best interest is deeply unethical. But actually looking at the data, which is what we did in this paper, we looked at, well, what happened? Did it save lives? Did it reduce mortality amongst uh, residents? What happened to care home workers? And the, the answers were pretty clear. There was no evidence of any reduction in mortality from the care home vaccine mandate for, for workers. So it didn't succeed in what it was planning to do. But what it did do, it drove lots of workers out of the industry. So some of those workers got replaced by people who were vaccinated, but we estimated around about 4% of the total elderly care home workforce left and were not replaced. So this, this crisis you had in care homes with staffing, which was going on anyway, was directly exacerbated by this vaccine mandate policy that was a unethical, but also didn't work anyway on the terms they wanted it to. And it was actually always obvious it wasn't going to work right from the start. Yeah, the politicians have definitely got some big questions to answer, which I don't think the COVID inquiry, I don't want to talk about that today. That's a whole other subject, but I don't think that is going to answer the the um, these questions that we want answered. Um, David, you're you must be very lucky being um, at Nottingham University. Um, you've been able to speak your mind freely, but you're, you know, you're a senior academic. You must mix in academic circles. Lots of your colleagues across the sector were not so lucky and a lot of them were censored. Um, what would you say is the feeling now with hindsight? Now we know the damage that lockdowns have done and a lot of evidence has come out about the harms um, of, of the vaccines as well. Do you think there's a recognition among academics that maybe um, that was a bad thing, keeping quiet um, and just going along with the government narrative? 
it, it's very hard to admit you're wrong, isn't it? And, that, and that's true for, for, for everybody. I mean, I, I, I was lucky in at Nottingham, and I'm, I'm you know, a professor already, so I wasn't sort of looking for promotion. And I suppose the other thing, I've always been involved in issues or, or researched on issues where, where there's a certain controversy. So looking at Brexit and you know, sex education and, and other issues. COVID, they, they generally left me alone. I know there were complaints made about me. I was told even from some within the university, from the medical school um, and from outside the university. But to their credit, um, you know, the, the university let me put, put my point of view and publish the data and so on. Interestingly, actually, I had, I had less, I had more pressure when I was speaking out on Brexit. So at one point, I had a very <laughs> senior you? member of the, of the university contact me to say the university weren't happy with what I was doing. I was given two positive view of the post-Brexit economy and they sort of wanted to disassociate the university from those views and you know it's quite outrageous so you know I was able to resist that if I'd been a more junior person it might have been harder to do so and I think that's part of the problem lots of people in academia do self-censor I, I was contacted by all sorts of people because I was publishing lots you know this daily data and commentary on Covid lots of people actually from my university in the medical school and other places who were not always agreeing but not agreeing with everything, but sometimes agreeing or largely agreeing and saying, well, I can't speak publicly because I know I'd get in trouble. I heard from a number of people at other British universities who were disciplined or were put under threat of discipline. And of course, people observe this. So you see, even if mm. it happens directly, you say, oh, mm, is it worth the trouble? Do I want, you know, why don't I just do something else instead? And we weren't as bad as what happened in the US and Australia. There were some economists in, in Australia who really got some a hard time. And it's not good for the professional. You know, the, the, these things, public policy works so much better when there's free, full, frank discussion where you have people sometimes putting, you know, quite provocative views and, and maybe things that are wrong. And other people step in and say, no, this is wrong for this reason. What we've seen, I think, over the past 10 years or more, and I've seen it in so all sorts of issues, is this focus on not debating the issue, but focusing on the person and trying to shut them up. And I've, I've been involved in the pro-life movement for a long time, and that's always been the, the approach when I was a student at university, was not to have a debate about abortion, but to try and ban the pro-life group from existing in the first place. I then saw it again with Brexit, where the, the idea was anyone who spoke in favour of Brexit was, for some reason, they were a, a racist. I mean, it's sort of utterly mad I, I, idea. And, um, and uh, you know, we won't debate it. And we, I saw it in my profession, actually, the economics profession, there were many economists who were against, who were for Brexit, but actually, you know, our, our main body, the Royal Economic Society, at one point campaigned to ask the BBC to stop having anti-Brexit economists, uh, pro-Brexit economists, <laughs> appear on the station. It was quite, quite bizarre. And then we saw it again with COVID as well. Only one narrative was allowed, this sort of mainstream, if you went against it. And um, even on things where, which we're now sure you're right, wasn't allowed. Yeah, David, I'm sure there's a lesson in there for our politicians because, you know, um, even them these days are, they're censored. Um, you know, if you say the wrong thing, then you're kicked out of the party. Um, perhaps that's part of the reason why we end up with um, so much incompetence in terms of policy making. And I don't think there's any other way of putting it um, because we have seen an awful lot of incompetence um, in that place um, over the last sort of five, 10 years. Um, David, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, assisted dying or assisted suicide, uh, as you like to put it. Um, 
you know, in, during COVID, um, we've seen a lot of talk about the use of midazolam, NDAs, and that like. And I've also had a lot of people on my show um, who, with relatives that have been in hospital, not necessarily just over COVID, but just been in hospital, and um, they've been essentially euthanized um, by by the doctors. I mean, there's no other way I can put it. So I'd like to talk to you about that because I think there's a worry already about the state taking decisions out of people's hands. But of course now. Now, um, there's those that, who actually want to legislate and make this available um, in, in law. So let's talk about that after this short break right here on TNT. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Scientists are freaking out over how warm the ocean has gotten. They should freak out. You know why? Because it's proof that it cannot be man-made. CO2 back radiation only penetrates the top millimeter or two of the oceans. So what's warming the ocean? Well, if you've been listening and following some of my writings, it appears logical and appears obvious that this has to be natural, specifically geothermally driven. Now, there are some other arguments out there. The solar people say because of the reduction of incoming rays that could be affecting the cloud cover. However, as a meteorologist, I could tell you why there's less cloud cover over the tropics. If it warms, and it's going to be distorted warming because of what we call the thermohaline circulation, it warms more away from the equator than around the equator. It affects the vertical velocity patterns, which lessen the upward motion over the tropical oceans. And guess what happens? You have less clouds. Now, I'm not going to get into an argument with my solar friends. I will tell you this. Those scientists that are panicking over how warm the ocean is getting should be panicking because it means that they can't possibly be right as to the cause and their gravy train should come to an end. I'd be panicking too. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Military families often sacrifice precious time away from loved ones while serving our country. And for those with children, the separation can be especially difficult. We were worried that with him leaving, that she would lose those connections with her dad. Some of life's best moments happen between parents, children, and the pages of a good book. United Through Reading provides that connection. You can watch your mom or dad read a book to you, and it almost feels like they're really there. We ensure they remain a consistent, meaningful part of their children's lives, no matter the distance. Just seeing Jacob recognize Daddy again after a long time just melted my heart. And now, as we're facing greater isolation from our loved ones, United Through Reading is also available to veterans. Learn more about United Through Reading and download our free secure app at unitedthroughreading.org. Around here, bushfire is just a part of life. We've been through it before, and we'll get through it again. The people here all look out for each other. We're a community that does its bit to plan and prepare to keep everyone safe. We live with bushfire, so we live bushfire ready. This is the Freeman Report with your host, James Freeman, on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Right, David, as I said, uh, I think there's a lot of people um, that are worried at the moment about the state 
taking control um, away from people on end-of-life care. And now we're looking at the some of the politicians want to actually legislate to allow doctors to assist people to die. What are your thoughts on this whole area? So I'll, I'll separate two things out. You know, I, I've been involved in the pro-life movement for a long time and I have a you know, principled um, point on euthanasia, assisted dying or assisted suicide. I think ethically they all point to the same thing. I think my, my bottom line is that the idea that uh, you, you should ever deliberately kill an innocent person is something is a principle that's always wrong and actually leads to all sorts of consequences. And that applies even when somebody decides or says they want, want to die. And the reason for that is that actually, um, you know, people can be in all sorts of positions. And traditionally, we've said that suicide is something which we, you know, we understand people go through and the pain they go through and the difficulties, but it's not something we encourage, which is why the law says it's, you know, a criminal act to assist somebody to commit suicide. What I think happens with assisted suicide is that we say, well, actually, we throw that out of the window and we say, well, somebody's in this terrible position where they're feeling suicidal and they want to kill themselves. If they're disabled or terminally ill or very elderly, we will actually say to them, OK, your um, desire to commit suicide, we will accept and we won't just accept, we will help you to do it. Whereas somebody else, perhaps who's younger, perhaps who isn't terminally ill, but also is feeling suicidal, we won't allow them to do it. And it's sort of a sort of fatal discrimination, and it, which is strange for people to hear sometimes because they think, well, it's a sort of it's sort of a right to decide how I'll die. But actually, if you put it the other way around, it should also be a right to say, kill me, without us then helping to kill somebody. If you think of somebody on top of a tower block. And they're saying, I want to die. I feel like I want to die. We wouldn't go and push them. We'd say, well, you know, we really hope you won't. You've got something worth living for. Your life is, is worth something. And we'll try and help you to live that life, even through difficult circumstances. And my, my point is we should do the same for the disabled, the vulnerable, the elderly. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why so many disabled groups are opposed to legalisation of suicide. Yeah, uh, and what... Suicide. And what, what do you think of the slippery slope um, argument? Because, you know, we've seen Canada um, go down this road. And I've heard stories, I've had people on my show from Canada who've talked about, I think there was one story of um, an elderly lady and she had, um, her hips were a problem um, and she couldn't afford a stair lift. And um, a government um, worker actually contacted her and said, well, look, you know, there's going to be a delay in the operation. We can't afford to do it now. But have you considered... Um, ending your life and actually the government would support you in doing that so even in the arguments that are put forward I think my personal view is that maybe there are some people particularly with um, neurological degenerative diseases which must be awful if you just end up you can't move any of your body you've got to have other people to do everything for you but for me it is that slippery slope argument what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's certainly certainly part of the, the issue. And I think it's undeniable when you look at what's happened in Canada and in the Netherlands and Belgium, where they've gradually um, liberalised euthanasia for even for children, for people who aren't necessarily terminally ill, for those with psychological illnesses, that once you drop the principle that it's OK in some circumstances to kill or help to kill an innocent person, once you've breached that principle, then actually it's only a question of what circumstances there are. And you can you know, always find some sort of reason as to why it might be. That's why that principle in itself is so important. I had a very good friend, some people may know, Alison Davis, for a number of years ago, who was in a really serious 
and was told she was in a ter terminally ill and really wanted to die. And actually, you know, she, she publicly admitted she tried to commit suicide several times and was very angry when her friends found her and brought her back to life and said, uh, you know, how dare you do that to me? She actually changed her mind and, and uh, looked back and said, well, actually, the reason I wanted to die, my pain hasn't gone away. My, my um, you know, she was very severely disabled. My disability has, hasn't gone away. What's changed has been my attitude to life and my understanding that my friends, that I am loved and I've got something to live for. She said, well, any law, however strict, I would have been now dead because she would have satisfied the strictest law you can imagine. So for me, Alison Davis is a greatest argument for not legalising euthanasia in any cases. One of the things I've done, so just putting my other hat on as an economist, is looking at some of the some of the numbers. And another piece of research was saying, well, one of the arguments is when you legalise assisted suicide, you actually might reduce other suicides because people who would have committed suicide perhaps because they're worried of being in this sort of degenerative situation where they can't at a later stage commit suicide will then um, you know take their lives if they know the law can protect can sort of give them that opportunity later on they may decide not to do that to delay and actually they find it's not as you know as disastrous as they thought it would be and you may see suicides go down so that's one of the things we've looked at looking at the US the different states that have legalised assisted suicide, does that argument work out? Because potentially it could, it wouldn't change the right or wrongs. And that actually, in fact, the, the data suggests it, it doesn't. When you legalise assisted suicide, you do see a big increase in overall suicides and probably also actually in non-assisted suicide. So there seems to be some sort of suicide contagion effect that once you sort of make it, make it acceptable, morally acceptable, if you like, to end your life, more people end up deciding to commit suicide, even not necessarily within that suicide programme. So there's very all sorts point, of unintended yeah. consequences that can happen when you do change the law. That is a very good point, actually, making suicide more acceptable um, increases the actual suicide rate. Um, David, we've got these, um, we've got politicians and we've got campaign groups now um, arguing the case for liberalising the, the um, assisted dying laws. Where do you think we are with that? Because traditionally, um, Britain, we've always pushed back. I mean, this question is not, it's not a new question. It's been around for a while. Do you think that we, the argument is gathering pace and we might see that, um, that legislation actually passed? Or do you think still um, we're, we're going to push back against this? Where do you think we are with well, the legislation? Yeah, I mean, there's been a big, big push by the BBC and other media outlets, the Daily Express, pushing this um idea that we need to change the law to allow euthanasia or assisted suicide uh, and uh, you know there's signals from the politicians that the government may be sort of giving the uh, you know the, the okay to, to free, free vote on it so we'll have to see what happens I think it was interesting what happened last time it's one of these issues you know you ask the public oh do you believe in the right to die and it's a natural thing we want we like rights we like the idea of autonomy and the, you know people tend to, tends to be majority saying yes sort of issue when you look in more detail at what actually happens and the experience of other countries people often then have second thoughts and change their minds and I think that's partly what happened last time when we had a debate debate on this everyone thought it was going to be very close it wasn't there was an overwhelming majority against legalizing assisted dying one of the reasons was the the people in favour of assisted dying have long been successful in painting this purely as a religious issue saying it's only those religious types who want to impose their views on other people when actually the argument against legalising assisted dying, you know, people, you know, there may be religious arguments, I'm not saying that's invalid, but actually it's also a human rights argument that we don't, we have a right not to be killed 
but when we're, when we're innocent. And what happened last time was so many disabled groups came and put their point of view and said, well, our members actually feel very vulnerable. We're the mm. ones who have been targeted by these laws and will end up feeling pressure to, to go along with them. And so elderly groups and disabled groups, I think that sort of changed the narrative. And what, who knows what will happen, but I hope that will happen again. We've got some really good campaigners in the House of Lords who are campaigning largely on that issue of disability and saying this targets them. And that's why they want to resist a change to the law. Yeah, I have to say I agree with you, David. I think it will put pressure on old people, vulnerable groups, um, including disabled as well. And I, I, I think, look, you know, the, at the moment, if people really do want to go down that road, it is available. They can go to another country. I don't think it would be a good idea to liberalise the laws um, in this country. Um, David Payton, um, thank you so much for joining me listen we'll have to get you back on the show soon um you write about a very varied um, number of topics um where can people go to read your material so you can f follow me on twitter i'm on uh, at cricket wyvern an old somerset cricket reference if you're wondering where the where the wyvern comes from um or uh, you can go to the university of nottingham business school nottingham university business school website and find me on there and there's links to various uh, papers and articles that uh, that I've written and you know I'm always interested to um, hear from people and to have engaged in debates you know and don't expect people to agree with me there's so many different topics I, I, I cover so I love having that debate and engagement on uh, on Twitter and um, and in person. Fantastic David Payton ladies and gentlemen thank you David and to the rest of you don't go anywhere stick with us right here on TNT.